What does love mean to you? How would you define it? Would you say your answer to that question has changed over the years? Love has got to be one of the most thought about, talked about, and longed for experiences of being a human being. But as you can see from all those responses, it can be tough to really nail it down clearly, even if we think we've got a good grasp on what love is. It did seem like the older people got in that video, the closer they were to being able to settle in to what love meant to them. I found that interesting. As we've mentioned in this series, John is likely near the end of his life when he wrote this letter. He's seeing some things clearly in the way that getting older and wiser allows. He's going to continue on his focus of love in our text today. It will be helpful to us to be humble enough to be willing to admit that sometimes we think we understand love when we really may be missing some things. Let's get right into it. We're going to start at 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. John loves this phrase. He is wearing it out. Christian love is truth manifested, both in Jesus who modeled it and in his disciples who follow his example. That's us. And John just continues to hammer this truth. He's wearing me out with this phrase. It's the same truth. We've heard it from the beginning. We've got it, John. Love one another. I know we can be lousy at this sometimes, but I get it. I think I know what love is. I can certainly tell when I'm unloving. This is basic stuff. Why such repetitiveness? Well, he's about to really double down. I mean, I'm kind of blown away at what was revealed to me through this next group of verses. And on the other side of my studying this passage, I see why he starts off with that same language here. Anyone who thinks, like me, I understand this love thing, is about to really be challenged. Let's see what he does next. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Okay, so he starts with Cain and Abel. Like he is taking us way back to the beginning. I can still recall the cartoon illustrations of this Bible story that I've known since I was a kid. Cain and Abel are in like animal skin clothing and Cain has a rock and is really angry and he's about to hit Abel with it. Even though it was a cartoon, I remember it being so dark and mysterious and confusing. It's the very first time you see hate in the Bible. It made an impact. How could you ever get so mad at your sibling you'd actually want to kill them with a rock? And where did Abel's wife come from? Right? In short, Cain killed Abel out of his jealousy of Abel's better offering to God. And God says something about Abel's blood crying out to him from the ground. And that's the point where I, as a kid, would like slowly close the Bible book story and be like, this God stuff is kind of scary. And then I'd open it right back up and keep reading. And I'd drink my big red soda and like sprayed some more Aquanet into my bangs. It was the 80s. 
But when God asked Cain, where is your brother? Cain was evasive about his hate. I don't know, God, am I my brother's keeper? I know we are all far from murdering somebody, but we're not too far from this tendency to be evasive when confronted about an area in our life that we need to be more honest with ourselves about. But why is John bringing up this story of murder? How is he connecting murder to love here? It feels like he's really random in his thought process, especially as he continues to the next verse. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. What is he talking about now? Like, that felt like a leap to me. I'm not sure yet, but I do know this verse has been misunderstood by many Christians. I know I misunderstood it for a long time. As a teenager and a young adult, I genuinely thought that the level of hatred or persecution you received from unbelievers would show you just how dedicated to God you were. Become more dedicated, receive more persecution. Persecution is your badge of honor, like it showed how holy you were. And I don't think I'm alone in that misunderstanding. My husband Matt and I volunteered in a youth group in our early 20s, and the youth pastor had these shirts that he would give out to the youth occasionally. They were branded to look like university shirts, and these shirts had a U, a P-U, really big on the front. It stood for Persecution University. And he would give these shirts out to any kid who ever stood up in youth group and shared a story of them being so dedicated to God that they were persecuted for it, and they would receive a shirt. And I remember thinking back then, like, why does this not sit well with me? I realized later, it's because we easily misunderstand what John is saying in that verse. I recently read a commentary on this verse by Marianne May Thompson, and I literally breathed an audible sigh of relief for someone speaking these words of truth that clarified the confusion I've felt about this. This is lengthy, it's gonna be on the screens though, so hang with me. She says, sometimes this passage is understood to imply that if Christians were to live truly in obedience to God's commands, the church would feel the full wrath of the hatred of the world. So Christians begin to wonder what is wrong if they are not being persecuted. But John does not say that the more righteous we are and the more we live as the children of God, the more the world will hate us, as if the quantity of our obedience determined the world's response to us. Rather, he states a simple fact. There is hostility between the world and the children of God. They have conflicting loyalties and values, and the world attempts to dissuade Christians from their commitments. The challenge to the present-day reader is to discern when the church is truly experiencing the hostility of the world. Not everything that the church undertakes necessarily comes from God, nor does all opposition to the church necessarily come from evil. While the world's hostility is to be expected, it is not to be made a badge of the quality of our Christian life. True assurance of who we are comes in a more positive way. I like that perspective much better. And I think we need to let John clear up this misunderstanding. I don't want you to miss this. He is not saying here that you will be persecuted because you are so holy. He's talking about love. He's saying you will be persecuted because of your love. 
if you love like Jesus, your love will be very confusing to the world. The world will see who you love and how you love them, and they will say, that doesn't make sense because that person does not deserve that. That's the persecution John is talking about. That's what sets us apart from the world, not our holiness. And if you doubt that at all, look what he says next. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love. There's no mention of our holiness here. And side note, I want to point out the Greek word that John uses here for brothers. It's adelphos, and it's used over 300 times in the Bible. And it's kind of like when we say, you guys. When we say you guys, we're not only talking to the guys and we're excluding the girls. Like maybe a better way to say it would be like, all y'all. Like the English language is super classy. So all y'all, when he says you guys, all y'all, when he's saying brothers here, he's including everyone. It was conjugated in a male form because that's what you would do if it was used as an inclusive term. Now, if you're reading from the NIV version, you'll see that it says each other or maybe brothers and sisters. I do think the NIV is the better translation here and it's truer to the obvious intent of who John was saying this to. If you're reading from the ESV, you'll see this version that we have on the screens. The ESV was translated in response to the NIV because some felt the NIV was too inclusive in its translation when there isn't a good English word equivalent to some of these Greek words. And that can seem kind of petty, but it's important for us to understand these things uh, because they, they trip us up as Christians when we're trying to decipher exactly what is being said in the Bible and who it's being said to, and it can make some scriptures confusing because it seems like they're only talking to the men. But this message is for everyone. Back to what John was saying. The greatest temperature check on our fellowship with God is our love for others. It's not our holiness, dedication. If you find yourself in a place of bitterness, jealousy, evasiveness, blame, hatred, he's saying you are in a place of death. And in that place, you cannot abide with and fellowship with your creator. And John is saying, it's time to leave that behind and step into life. And he's using this really extreme example of murder. It's very connected to what Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, that hate is murder. That should put all of us in check a little bit. Jesus said, if you just hate someone, you've murdered. Okay, so the most extreme example of hate, white supremacy, is murder. We can all agree on that. But what John is saying is something even more. Hateful, uncompassionate comments on social media. Murder. I don't like what that other person over there has. Murder. Even hate that feels very justified. I can think of some people I 100% think deserve to be hated by me. Murder. Sobering thoughts that I would prefer to be evasive about. 
So what's the connection? I think he's elevating this truth that we are meant for love. And when we don't love, we are taking life from someone else. Oof. And if that's not heavy enough, John is really going to double down on clarifying this further for us. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So John flips this whole thing. Now he's talking about Christ and how he laid down his life for us. And he defines love and uses a certain word for love here. And we'll see another example of the English language not quite having the equivalent words that the Greek language has as John defines this love for us in a very specific way. How we define love is important. If we define love the wrong way, then everyone passes or no one passes the love test. To understand the biblical idea of love, we should begin by understanding the vocabulary of love among the ancient Greeks who gave us the original language of the New Testament. And they used four different Greek words in the Bible when they would talk about love. Eros, erotic love. Storge, familial love. Philia, brotherly love. And this word you may have heard before, agape. Agape love describes a love that loves without changing. It is a self-giving love that gives without demanding or expecting repayment. It is love so great that it can be given to the unlovable or unappealing. It is love that loves even when it is rejected. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment from the love given. Agape love is Christ's example, and it's the type of love John is saying we need to have. It's endless. It's undeserving. We could never pay it back. We could never earn it. We could never lose it. Our bad choices never make it think twice. The way we live our lives does not deter it. Our unbelief in it never makes it untrue. Our unacceptance of it never keeps it from continuing to chase us down. And he's saying that's what you need to go out and do for other people. And can't we all feel good about that conceptually? But here's the hard truth, church. Through John, God is showing us what happens when you are in relationship with an imperfect person. God knows a thing or two about that. What I'm about to say is so true, I can't deny it. And it seems so unbelievable to me at the same time, but I know it's true. And I think it's what the Holy Spirit of God is wanting us to see today. When you are in relationship with someone, one of you is going to lose your life. When you're in relationship with an imperfect human, which turns out is our only option, 
one of you is going to lose their life. You either take theirs or you give yours. This is true of God and humanity. It's true of us and our relationships. Every single relationship we have. And John is showing us through these extreme examples of our hate being like murder and of Christ choosing to die for us that the nature of love and hate is that someone always dies. Loving is saying, I will be the one who dies instead of making you die for me. I will give my life. I will not take something from yours. And then John gets very specific with this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John is defining the sacrificial love for us. It's in the actions we take to sacrificially be the one to lose something. And that's exactly what agape love is. It's not about feeling something for someone. It's about the action of self-sacrifice. I give my life so I don't take something from yours. When we're in relationship with another human, someone is going to lose their life. We either give or we take. There's no in-between. Wow, John, I feel pretty inadequate in all of this now. I thought I understood what love meant, but now John has cleared up some of my misunderstandings. I feel pretty bad about my efforts to love, like they fall painfully short. John knows we're there. That's why he goes on. He leans into those fears of inadequacy, and he addresses us as beloved. Hear the compassion and understanding in this truth as he continues. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. John knows we need some reassurance in this. He's defined this command to love so strongly that he knows we'll doubt ourselves. And so he focuses on the nature of God's love. God knows our heart. And even when our heart doubts whether we can even do this very hard thing that he's asking us to do, God is greater. And we can ask for what we need, and he'll give it to us. He's given us his spirit. That spirit abides in us and fosters this ability to love like Christ. Love is something God is good at. Can you see how this is the thing that God has always excelled at? The rest of us, we're just learning how. You know what we're good at? Self-preservation. We're really good at that. Let's be honest with ourselves. We have a lot of growth to do, and we're tempted to condemn ourselves with that, but God knows we're in process. John knows that too. 
I pray that you're feeling the Spirit stirring that awareness of a need to grow in this. And I want to ask if we could, as the church, consider a specific way we take the lives of others instead of giving up our own. A way we close our hearts against our brothers and sisters. A specific way that we, as the church, can have a tendency to love only in word or talk, which John warns us against. Here's how this seems to unfold for us. We are given this very short list of commandments in verse 23. Here it is. That's so simple. It's so short. That's it. Well, it's simple when we misunderstand it. But John has just cleared it up for us. And with this clarity, we realize how very serious and how very not simple it really is. But our tendency is to take the shallow skip across this command to love. And the list there is so short. When we do that, we begin to doubt that that could really be all there is to this. And we instantly start adding things to this list. For example, well, yes, it's about believing in the name of Jesus Christ and loving one another. But it's also got to be about how and when you baptize people. Like, that's important. There's got to be something in there about prioritizing your family. Oh, yeah, and what about how you do church? Like, some churches focus all on the Sunday morning services. Other churches spend all their time out in the city. It's got to be also about how you interpret these verses about women preaching and leading in churches. Your sexuality and your gender identity have got to be on that list too. I mean, what a mess if those aren't on there. What about your views on abortion? Abortion is literally murder. That has to be on the list. Whether you say black lives matter or blue lives matter matters. That has got to be on this list. And before we know it, our list is very, very long. And it's not even God's list anymore. It's our list. This command to love. We misunderstand it when we don't see it in the very strong way John has defined it for us today. Love is a call to die. When it's just that, Loving God and loving people the way Christ loved, choosing to be the one that dies, it's enough because that changes people's lives. That's a love we don't understand. We are changed when someone loves us like that and nothing else is needed. But we skip across that command to love when we misunderstand it and when we do that, we immediately start adding all these other things to it. And before we know it, we are an issues-centered church. We are not a gospel-centered church. And that's the gospel. There's nothing else that needs to be added to that to change the world around us. Believe Jesus is the Christ and love one another. John has showed us that we have to prioritize these things that we care about. It's not wrong to care about those issues. But if we were to ask John, 
Well, what is the issue that rises to the level of importance that it should interfere with the relationship of another human and mess with my ability to love that person? John would say, there is none other than believing in the name of Jesus Christ. And he'd probably shake his head and say, beloved, this is why I repeat myself so much. It's hard for us to grasp. It can't be all there is to this. We doubt it and we try to add to it. Issues are important. I'm not saying that none of those things matter. They matter, and they matter deeply to God. But those issues don't matter to God because he's chosen a side, and he knows which side is right. Those issues matter deeply to God because he probably doesn't even see them as issues. All he sees are his children being chewed up and spit out by the never-ending grind of these debates. I can assure you that what matters most to God are his precious children whom he made in his image and who you can find on both sides of the lines that we draw. God cares about these debates deeply because he cares about people. John's been very clear. Debatable issues don't matter as much as this. We are to love like Christ did choosing to be the one to die to ourselves. Can you see how the greater prioritization you give those issues you care about, the harder it is to see the faces of the people on the other side of that line and then make the choice to be the one to lose something for their sake. John isn't talking about issues. He's talking about real people. And with people, we know this is true. Love costs us something. And if you're human, unfortunately, you've probably suffered because of somebody else's dysfunctional issues. You may have thought, I already died in that relationship, and I just keep dying. John is not negating that. He's saying, can you learn from our God who has perfected this thing? God is not calling us to be a doormat. There's a big difference between getting run over in relationships that are not safe or with agency and awareness choosing to take the action of self-sacrificial love. Those things can sometimes look the same, but they're very different, and I want to point that out. Beloved, do you need to think about what being the one to choose to give your life looks like in the context of your relationships? Do you have a relationship where you're more focused on the issue than on how you can exercise that agape love? Do you see God pointing out a relationship to you that needs a better definition of love than the one you've given it? I thought a lot of those definitions of love that people shared in the video at the beginning were really good. They were close, but according to John, any definition of love that falls short of someone being willing to be the one to lose something is a misunderstanding of love. And the wild thing about all of this losing your life talk is how God transforms us when we choose to be the one to lose. Jesus said, whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. He said, self-sacrifice is the way. 
It's my way to finding your true self. That sounds pretty good to me. I do believe that is what all of our hearts long for.